Um, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to today's webinar, um, looking at China's growth potential uh, after COVID. Uh, we're delighted to have with us Jean Ma, Head of China Research at the IIF uh, in Singapore, um, and really looking forward to the session. Um, now, you'll, some of you will know me. I'm Mike Wardle, Chief Executive Officer at CEN, um, and deal with our index work uh, studying financial centers across the world and, the, and their development. Uh, my role today is to chair, um, so really to get out of the way very quickly and uh, pass over to Gene to uh, hear his keynote presentation. But first, I'd like just to say a brief thank you to our sponsors. We are very fortunate to have um, sponsors that allow us to range in this webinar series widely across the fields of economics, finance, um, science, technology, innovation, um, you name it. Um, and we really are grateful for uh, their continued support. Um, looking at the program for today, um, very briefly, uh, uh, it's me to introduce um, before Gene gives his keynote presentation. There'll be a Q&A session at the end uh, of his presentation. Uh, for those of you who haven't used GoToWebinar before, the way to ask a question is to go to the dashboard uh, on your screen, uh, go to the questions tab and type in your question, um, and I'll field those questions at the end uh, of the event, um, and we'll start a discussion going. Um, those of you who do put questions in, we will pass your contact details on to Gene afterwards, so if there's any need for any further um, follow-up, um, that can happen. Uh, and just a reminder that today's uh, session is being recorded, so uh, a recording of the session will be available on our website in about 48 hours' time. So if you find this presentation interesting and you want to share it uh, with your friends and colleagues, um, that opportunity is available to you. Um, so without any further uh, introduction from me, it's time to pass over to Gene Ma. Um, head of China Research at IIF. Um, we're really looking forward to his insights as he tracks uh, what's happening in China very closely. Um, and as we know, China continues to be um, one of the most important economies to be watching uh, in the world. So, Gene, we're delighted to have you with us. Uh, over to you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it is a quite extraordinary time for uh, to talk about China because we're facing a lot of changes, uh, shift in China's economy, it's a policy, on uh, even financial economic leadership uh, and also China's relationship with the rest of the world. Uh, let's start with the ending the uh, zero COVID policy. It was abandoned basically in early December. The right after, I think in about four or five weeks time, one billion people got infected, uh, which is unbelievable. Um, but very fortunately, uh, we didn't find any new variant. Uh, because when you have 1 billion people getting infected in four or five weeks, it's a very scary uh, scenario or situation. Um, the fatality rate is certainly higher than the official number, but probably uh, in line with this number we see in other Asian um, countries, also in Hong Kong. So uh, in early January, uh, Korea reported 80 70% of people arriving in South Korea tested positive right and drop to zero. Okay, the point I want to make is that it is truly over. Uh, even China's own CDC made an announcement, it's over. Uh, so the, for example, travel between China and China mainland, Hong Kong right now are completely open. Uh, so we can really can talk about economy policy in a post-COVID uh, era. So next slide. So uh, uh, next slide, please. So we can very go very briefly about economic uh, uh, outlook. 
So we expect about a five to five and a half growth uh, in 2023. So the premier in the report that they did before yesterday put out a target, which is about 5%, which is pretty modest. There's a reason for it. Uh, premier is going to retire in a couple of days time. So while he gave out the uh, the target of the plan for 2023, really he's setting a target for his successor. So he is setting a very low bar, and it's pretty easy for successor to meet uh, in 2023. I think the growth is somewhere higher than 5% this year. It's not a great high number. Consider only 3% last year. You do the average, it's a little over 4% uh, on a two-year average term, uh, which is still probably a little bit below uh, potential. That is why you don't see much inflation in China right now. Uh, so, uh, so that's what we see uh, for this year. Uh, next slide. So at this moment, what we see is that uh, PMI bounced back very strongly. Uh, so you can see that uh, bounced back, uh, in fact, also a little bit above consensus uh, in February, uh, especially for uh, PMI service, uh, which is the orange line in the left chart is way above uh, uh, the level we see in the late last year. Basically bounced back from 40 uh, in last December to uh, uh, 55 right now. Now, what is really surprising is the PMI for trade uh, because we know trade basically collapsed uh, in, in November, December. And if it is, there are a lot of uh, media coverage of uh, containers are Empty containers are piling high in China seaports. Uh, but however, somehow the PMI number showing that uh, even the uh, export import orders uh, also bounced back in February. So that's a very strange. Um, so we have to wait to see uh, in March data to see really uh, what happened. Um, probably the reason is that um, China export too much, maybe the PMI number is telling the true story, then the container, empty containers in the seaport. Reason is China export so much in the past two years, now the empty container coming back to China. So in this case, uh, the export will be much weaker this year, and uh, maybe it's better than the empty container number uh, uh, tell us. Uh, next slide. Yeah, so these are the uh, the trade numbers. So the export, if you see the, uh, if you look at the right chart, basically export to the EU, to the United States collapsed in the uh, uh, late last year. And export to ASEAN, they're also coming down, but it's still growing at 10% in the first quarter. So it's very clearly uh, right now, uh, well, we you know in the past, China is the final assembly, but China's buying things from Korea, Japan, putting together, shipped to the United States. This changed. Okay. Um, right now, China's shipping um, parts, components to ASEAN, put together and ship them to the United States to circumvent uh, the trade tariff. So that's why uh, China's export ASEAN goes um, in the same uh, direction as they export to the United States, but not exactly in the same pace. Uh, next slide. Uh, next slide, uh, please. 
So there's about the latency. Uh, so next slide. So beside the train number, you can also see such a pattern from a Chinese FDI. Uh, China's also increased FDI in ASEAN and also in Mexico to get closer to the US. Yeah, China's also helping uh, the US to do the nearshoring. Okay. Um, the reason we believe China can see a pretty decent recovery in growth is basically domestic uh, consumption. Um, last year, I think China consumption was very low uh, with the consumption growth. So I think it was uh, basically zero growth last year. We expect that it can recover to almost now net nine to 10% this year. So if China's domestic household consumption can grow at a nine or 10, given that house consumption about 37% of the GDP, that immediately give you a three and a half to 4% point of GDP growth. And uh, that is uh, considering China's house consumption is very small part of GDP uh, compared with a much higher uh, portion in a more advanced economy. That can still give you a three and a half, uh, 4% of GDP uh, this year. Now, the reason we can expect a, a better consumption is that uh, income will be better this year, consumer confidence should be a bit stronger, uh, and the, the year-over-year base in the last year was very low, so that can get pushed up the year-over-year comparison. And more importantly, uh, China households are sitting on a huge amount of deposits. Uh, on the right side of the chart show you the new household deposit in 2022, that's 18 trading RMB versus only 10 trading the year before. Okay. And uh, China household took out much less in loans because they didn't buy as many homes as they used to uh, in 2022. They put more money in the banks. On uh, the right chart, the curve shows the stock of the stock household deposit, not flow. The, uh, the bar chart in the left is flow. The curve on the right chart is the stock. Um, basically, Chinese house are sitting on 120 trillion yuan of household deposits. Okay, there's a 20 trillion more than the number predicted uh, using the trend uh, before the COVID. So that's a lot of number. So 120 trillion yuan in banking deposits, that is about 80,000 uh, RMB per person, about a um, 200,000 yuan per family, okay? Even say, we say not all the money will be deployed, but still a lot of money uh, can be spent uh, in 2023. Okay. The problem is that most of the money will be spent on domestic service, domestic consumption, and the spillover uh, to the global economy will be very little. Uh, we may see a more China tourists in Thailand, Singapore, and that's it. Um, so the spillover impact will be very different from the past, uh, people remember in 2009, 2010, um, after a great financial crisis when China pushed out a greater stimulus and that created, created a huge 
a commodity super cycle, this time can be very different because this time uh, you can just see the, the China's uh, uh, work report just released yesterday. There isn't much uh, stimulus uh, this time. So we will not see uh, a surge in China's uh, infrastructure and housing investment. So that will not create much uh, demand for global commodities. And uh, the for consumer spending, uh, the money will be mainly domestic and mainly in service. So, so that may benefit uh, some some sectors like luxury goods, um, but not that much more. Uh, next slide. Yeah. Another reason we see uh, quite limited spillover is that um, we only expect China housing sectors to stabilize, but not rebound uh, in 2023. So the left chart show you uh, the home sales and housing start. Uh, in 2022, home sales, I think it's down about 30%, the blue bar is down, down by 30%. Uh, and the housing starts down by 40%. And moreover, um, if you can see the next slide, uh, Chinese developer didn't buy uh, much land uh, last year. Yes, the left chart show you the land purchase by developers. So that also basically collapsed by 50%. So when the land purchase down by 50% last year, and the housing started down by 40%. And uh, you cannot just expect a sharp rebound in housing activity uh, in 2023. So I think uh, in 2023, housing activities in terms of home sales, housing start, construction activities, I think they are just less bad in 2022. I think it stabilized from a very deep negative growth in 2023 to somewhere in zero, a low single digit growth uh, in 2023. So again, uh, we cannot expect a, a, a commodity super cycle uh, from a housing activity. Next slide. Um, yeah, this chart show you uh, the developer finance and the local government revenue. We all know that land revenue is almost half of the local government revenue. And when the land sales down by 50% and the local government is, uh, is already highly leveraged, um, they just won't have the money uh, to finance more infrastructure investment. Um, and also, the, the problem with China's infrastructure investment, not only because of under, uh, the finance, but also because it's already much overbuilt, you cannot continue to build bridges to nowhere. And the last year, the infrastructure investment was already growing at 9%, uh, which is not too bad, uh, because that's part of it's a stimulus um, in a COVID time. So it's hard to uh, imagine 
China can push the infrastructure investment goal even higher uh, in 2023. So again, on the infrastructure side, um, we cannot expect a much stronger commodity demand in 2023. Uh, next slide. So if you look at the uh, the bar in the left, yeah, if the chart on the left shows that the last year real estate was indeed very bad, but however, the investment growth uh, for infrastructure and in the manufacturing sectors were growing the 10% last year. So uh, the last year's growth was not too bad, uh, thanks partly to the uh, COVID stimulus, but uh, they cannot grow much higher uh, in 2023. Uh, next slide. So another concern people have is that will China reopening will be uh, inflationary for the global economy? Uh, my answer is probably not. So during the COVID time, when China's economy was very weak, when China was experiencing uh, deflation uh, during lockdowns, uh, China didn't help to dampen the global uh, inflation, right? Uh, so why should we expect China will be will pushing up global inflation after it reopened? Uh, the China PPI, which in the left chart, used to have a very high correlation which is highly correlated with the global PPI, but not for the CPI. Uh, the reason is that um, CPI uh, has large service component, which are domestic, which has very little uh, pass through uh, or spillover effect. And also given the fact that this time, uh, China spending will be mostly on domestic uh, consumption on domestic service, with, with a very uh, limited uh, impact on commodities and energies. So I don't think a chance of reopening will be that much uh, inflationary for the global economy. On the oil side, uh, China's buying uh, the more Russian oil, which is boycotted by the Western uh, countries. So again, I don't think the chance higher um, additional oil demand after reopening will push up much global oil price. Uh, next slide. Uh, another question is that, uh, what is the uh, China's long-term growth potential? Because we saw China growth slow down from high single digit pre-COVID to only three or 4% uh, during COVID time. So some people have the view that uh, China growth potential shift lower permanently. Uh, China cannot not, um, grow uh, at uh, that high speed anymore. So where is the China growth potential? So it's very hard to uh, give a definitive answer. One evidence I give you is China Phillips curve. That is when China's unemployment rate is below 5%. We do, see, we do not see high inflation in China. Okay, so basically, uh, if you look at the China's nine root, okay, now accelerating inflationary uh, unemployment rate, it's around about five. Uh, right now, 
uh, China's unemployment rate is about five and a half, with youth unemployment rate close to 20%, which is shocking, okay? Uh, which never happened in China before. China right now has youth unemployment rate close to 20, 18 to 20%, uh, somewhere, something we saw in North Africa and in in Southern Europe uh, uh, during uh, European debt crisis. So that is why we uh, have the view that a China growth rate right now is still below potential. So 4% of growth is below potential. Um, next slide. Um, yeah, this chart, I'll, I think I'll skip this chart. Basically this chart, uh, yeah, I skipped this uh, monetary policy chart because this is uh, something backward, uh, backward looking. Uh, in terms of the money the policy, um, in, in, a, in a summary that the PPOC will move from somewhat expansionary policy towards more neutral stance in 2023, uh, because the max inflation will move up from 2.1 last year to somewhere close to three. Okay, so uh, interest rate cuts and triple R cuts are off the table now. So that's why we'll see there's no stimulus in China in 2023. There are no stimulus on monetary side, and it's also um, very uh, mild expansion of fiscal uh, policy on the fiscal side. Another key question people have is that is China still investable? Okay, because people saw huge amount of capital outflow uh, from China last year. So the left chart show you that the foreign investors took out about $80 billion from China in terms of portfolio investment. Uh, I'm not talking about FDI or banking flow. We're talking about portfolio flows last year. That's large to ever. Okay. Now, the problem is that last year, the, on the fixed income side, uh, it was about 93 bidding outflow. But on the equity side, it was 13 bidding inflow uh, in net. Well, if this outflow was triggered by a geopolitical risk because of the war in Ukraine, China's close tie with Russia, and the risk over Taiwan Strait, then you see, should see the outflow in both fixed income and equity. Okay. The fact that outflow was only in fixed income, not in, in equity. In fact, you see some inflow in equity. That means uh, the outflow was still triggered by Fed rate hike. And the, and the reverse uh, in China and the US, US uh, yield curve, yield spread. Um, and also, uh, if you look at China's uh, the equity flow, it, there's an outflow in March when Shanghai, when people were spooked by the Shanghai lockdown, and there was outflow in October during the party congress when China's policies was very uncertain. And otherwise, it was a uh, uh, in net um, there's a capital inflow uh, for the whole year. Okay, and also. If a people are really scared uh, by uh, the risk over Taiwan Strait, that people need to pull money out of 
from both the mainland China and Taiwan, not just mainland, right? Um, so it, it is still uh, the the policy uncertainty, the policy blunder uh, last year, and the very poor economic performance and the Fed hike uh, made people to move uh, portfolio money out of China uh, last year. And moreover, we see a far more granular observation. It is more uh, the institution have a closer tie with the government. They tend to take money out. So see Canadian pension funds, uh, some sovereign wealth funds, uh, they made an announcement that um, they were they're putting out uh, the longer term non-liquid private equity deals from China. More liquid money are still uh, staying invested. By the way, there was an, uh, another report, uh, I think yesterday, uh, Mark Mobius uh, complaining that he was not able to pull money out. So that, that was not portfolio money, that was meaning uh, banking money, which is subject to uh, KYC AML. Uh, next slide. So, um, Premier Li Keqiang gave his farewell speech. Uh, he had a 32-page uh, speech, uh, only four or five pages devoted to uh, policymaking 2023. So it's all about uh, a summary of his achievement in the past five and 10 years. It's really not about uh, the policy uh, for 2023. So we'll see uh, a new team uh, coming into uh, Beijing policymaking theme. Next slide. So back in October last year, during people's uh, during party congress, uh, people were very uh, unsure who would take charge of China's economic policy going forward. Now we have a bit more uh, clarity. So this is uh, based on the speculation right now. So we will give we will note uh, uh, the the final announcement in a couple of days time. So the most likely uh, the premiership will go, go to uh, Li Chang. The name is very similar. Uh, Mr. Li Chang, uh, new Mr. Xi Jinping, President Xi Jinping, uh, since 1980s and 1990s. Uh, if you see the the um, upright picture, it seems like they're very happy bear buddies. Um, uh, so Mr. Li Chang, um, he was a uh, President Xi Jinping's uh, chief of staff when Xi Jinping was a party chief uh, back in Zhejiang. Uh, Mr. Li Chang, this person, he is very much pro-business. Uh, he was very close to Jack Ma in financial. He met uh, Elon Musk no fewer than four times. He can claim credit of getting Tesla to build a, the large factory in Shanghai. Next one. Well, even though he was hated for Shanghai lockdown, you have to know at the very beginning, he was very lenient, but then he suddenly switched gear in post during Kony lockdown in Shanghai when he received the order from the very top. Uh, the economic czarship was handed over from Mr. Liu He to Mr. He Lifeng, currently chair of NDRC. They are very different people. With Liu He, um, the world uh, 
get to know him because uh, he negotiated the first phase one trade deal with Donald Trump. Um, Mr. Liu Ho, he, he was very bookish, uh, however educated, uh, very nerdy, soft-spoken, very gentleman um, uh, type. Ms. Hardy Feng is, has a much more, more forceful uh, personality. Uh, the current uh, scoop is that uh, in addition to being a vice premier taking charge of economic policy, he will also take the, uh, the position of party chief at the PBOC. So he will not be the governor, he will, he will, but he will be the party chief uh, at the PBOC. So that is the current speculation right now. Okay, uh, next one. Um, right now, uh, one thing is not a very certain is the PPOC governorship uh, for the next 10 years. There's a chance that Governor Egan will stay because the Egan is well liked. Um, he speaks speak good English. It's one of very few Chinese uh, Beijing bureaucrats can communicate in English, but there's also a good chance that uh, that goes to um, the the gentleman called uh, Mr. Zhu Lixing, who is the uh, current head of Silica Group. Uh, next one. So I will not go into all the details, but basically I want to see is that, okay, in a nutshell, he give you two takeaways of the Beijing's economic and financial leadership. First of all, they're all very young. They're all in the 50s. No one in the 60s, they're all in the 50s. So it's a much younger cohort than the, than the predecessors, than the, than the cohort in the past 10 years. And a second, uh, they're all very well educated. Um, so they all have very long experience in Chinese banking sector. So that's also uh, a departure uh, from their previous cohort. Because in the previous key, key, uh, cohort, uh, both uh, Vice Premier Liu He and uh, Governor Yi Gang, they were more academic type. They, they had no banking experience. So it's, uh, it's very different from the, current, uh, the next cohort. So let me stop here and uh, to save the rest of time uh, for Q&A. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jean, for that um, overview um, and some fascinating uh, movements in the in the numbers which you've been tracking. Um, floor's open for questions. Uh, we have um, a, a few in already. Uh, first of all, from Douglas Andrews. Um, he was uh, taken by the uh, consumer savings, the, the household savings uh, figures that you gave, and just wondered whether you have any um, idea or expectation uh, when those accumulated savings over the past three years will start to flow back into the Chinese economy in the form of spending on goods and services, uh, housing. So you know, how quickly do you anticipate uh, some of that, those reserves will, be, will start to be spent? Yeah, well, yeah, even though we know uh, China's data quality is not that great, but the PBS data is something you can trust, right? This is not a too difficult. Okay, these are the data collected from banks. Uh, so 120 trading in stock, 18 trading flow, these numbers are real. The problem is that there's, well, there's one caveat is that 
it is possible not all those deposits are truly household deposits. Some of these can be business deposits by mom and pop shops, but proprietary uh, small business. Okay, um, so these are uh, they take a personal loan, take a credit card loan to run small business. Okay, so some so some portion of the money can be uh, business deposits, not household deposits. The reason you see such a surge in deposits because it bought a few homes last year. Uh, they also pull money back um, from uh, stock market last year. See, also they pull money out of something called a uh, wealth managed products. This is quasi shadow bank product. Okay, they put the money back into uh, safer, uh, more liquid uh, bank deposits. Okay, so that's why not as all the deposit came spent right away. Okay, because uh, a lot of things are just uh, as a rebalance of um, household financial portfolio, okay? So even though say one third, one quarter of the money can be spent uh, in 2023, still a lot of uh, fuel uh, for, for consumption. Okay, okay thank you. Um, Clive Bullen's interested about the relationship between the UK and China for trading and investment. Um, how do you see it progressing? And do you think Brexit has made any difference to um, the trading relationship? Wow, uh, that's a, a difficult Big question. question. <laughs> uh, I think the Beijing's relationship with uh, London is uh, has a lot of up and downs. Okay, you have to remember when the Xi Jinping predecessor and even Jiang Zemin's time, they went to London. They really enjoyed the time they can ride in the carriage with the Queen. Okay, and. I think that the time with uh, Cameron was also pretty good, uh, but it took a sharp downturn uh, during Trump era and uh, with, uh, uh, with Boris Johnson. Um, I think Beijing is working very hard to find alternatives to United States um, as a source of technology, as a trade partner, uh, uh, as a, uh, basically someone they can talk to. <laughs> uh, Beijing, very few people they can talk to right now. It's a relationship with Moscow, in fact, is a lot more tricky than people realized. Um, I have the view that Beijing was doped. Uh, early last year to claim the friendship has no limit. Uh, and I also have the view that Beijing didn't know it was a war. The evidence, the evidence that the Beijing Democrats told me that if they knew it was an invasion, they would evacuate Chinese students out of Kiev a lot sooner, uh, a lot earlier. In fact, they were the very last to evacuate the Chinese uh, living Kiev because they thought that was not a war, that was not invasion. That's what Moscow told them. Um, and, um, and also you see the news lately that uh, Washington's claim that Beijing is considering sending weapon. It's a, the scoop come from Moscow, not from Beijing. Um, yeah, maybe 
some companies send out some chips and the parts uh, because not under embargo or sanction, right? And uh, Beijing has been handling this relationship very carefully. Hmm. Uh, at the same time, Beijing will complain, well, even we have so far behaved so well, we've done nothing more than the Indians and, and Turks do, but we never get any credit. Okay, we, we, we never get an, an appreciation from, from Washington. Mm. Um, so, so go back to your question. Um, first of all, if I can later, I can give you one later, I can send you, I can send you a chart later. Look at like where China is importing right now. Uh, China's import from Japan, United States, and EU has been declining consistently. Imports from uh, Latin America is picking up. Uh, China right, is importing more from Latin America than from Japan and the United States. It's getting closer to EU. So I think just in two years time, uh, Latin America will become a larger export to China, larger than Japan, larger than United States, larger than uh, even EU. Okay. Uh, China relationship with UK, of course, very different. China will not buy commodities from UK, right? Uh, but China, I think, will be very, Beijing will be very keen uh, to expand uh, the financial ties uh, with, uh, with London. Uh, so see London as an RMB, offshore RMB center. Um, China has been pushing for uh, the, the stock net between Shanghai and London for a while. Uh, there are a lot of technical difficulties become time zone difference uh, with the settlements. Um, but you will see more Chinese companies go to London for listing. So for example, one of Chinese, I forgot which company lately, is this, this uh, Cat L? They are seeking listing in Switzerland rather than United States because given the PCLB in the auditing saga, they become a lot more difficult for Chinese companies seeking listing in NASDAQ and NYSE than seeking listings in uh, in London and Switzerland. So these are the uh, things that we have uh, we should watch out. Thank you very much. Um, Akana Chantuala has asked um, to, to say a bit more about um, investors, uh, referring to uh, Mark Mobius commenting that he was unable to get his funds out of China, um, and really just to get a, a flavour from you of where you think the Chinese government is in terms of these kind of questions, um, and you know, whether there's going to be an impact um, on investment in China. Basically, should investors be worried? Yeah, that question, uh, that uh, I was uh, uh, also very alarmed by this uh, news report. So we don't know the full detail yet. Uh, as far as I know, my understanding is that uh, that was not the, the portfolio managed by his firm. Rather, it was his uh, personal money in the bank account. And uh, uh, then you have to... Uh, it's, I think, about three million uh, banking deposits. And when you move the banking money out, you have to go through the AML 
um, and uh, those those uh, uh, paperwork. Um, so that's why I think that I think the I think the banks uh, uh, HSBC right uh, the uh, the bank also came out and said well there's no change in terms of policy. Uh, this is the same old stuff uh, the paperwork have to do now. That doesn't mean there are no capital control. There is capital control indeed in China. Uh, Beijing pushed very hard in terms of financial opening in the past few years. But the financial opening was entirely about opening the financial market. Okay, there's a difference between opening the financial market and opening the financial account. Okay, that's that very different. Okay. Uh, the financial market right now is completely open. Okay? Uh, you can do uh, asset management, brokerage, investment banking, insurance, payment, you name it. Okay? All type of financial service are open in China right now. Okay? Audience get the, what's the latest one, get the, uh, the insurance license um, with 100% stake. Uh, American Express, Visa, uh, PayPal got a payment license uh, lately. But on the financial account side, they're still standing the wheel, right? Uh, mostly those policies are against domestic residents rather than foreigners because the policy making you very well. Uh, if you want to get foreign money in, then you cannot you have to let them take money out. Otherwise, they will not come in uh, in the first place. So they knew it very well. Um, so in fact, there is no new policy coming from Beijing from SAFE to limit uh, the flow of foreign investors. Usually, they were so sense in the wheel for domestic uh, residents. Yeah. You, yeah, you have a quota of 50K a year, he wanted he wants to withdraw cash as of well coming back next week. Okay, the guy who is in charge of this uh, business uh, uh, is on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, a, a, a final question, really. My interest in uh, was piqued by some of the personnel changes that you talked about at the uh, top of the economic institutions. Um, do you think the the fact that uh, I mean, is this a, a proper generational change, sort of a new generation of leaders taking over, or is it simply um, natural turnover amongst the same group and the same people, the same thought patterns, um, you know, to, taken forward from previous generations? Yeah. So the party leadership transition uh, happened in last October. She got his third term. Then he basically. Uh, get a new group of the people in the political bureau, right? So, uh, so the party transitions in the fall, then the administration uh, transition happens in the spring, basically right now. Um, so they, they basically, they would restructure the whole administration, for example, they will restructure the Ministry of Science Technology, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, they will set up a new institutions. They will set up a uh, Bureau of Data, which is entirely new, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, they also will uh, shake up um, the, the whole financial leadership. Um, 
basically they will streamline uh, uh, the the whole financial leadership. Basically, they will elevate uh, the status of the previous called CBIRC China Banking Insurance Regulatory Commission. They will elevate the one into so called Bureau of Financial Supervision. Uh, let it take out more functions such as the consumer protection and the supervision of financial conglomerates. Uh, there are certain uh, couple of uh, large conglomerates is very difficult to deal with, like a city group, uh, merchant group, uh, Everbright group, right? They own banks, chance uh, Everbright, Everbright group, right? They own bank, they own Everbright bank, they own Everbright securities, uh, they have asset manager arm. Um, so that's why in the past, uh, they are supervised by different entities, by several entities. Now they have to consolidate into one entity. There's a Bureau of Financial Supervision. Uh, and uh, in, in the part of China bond market, is also supervised by two entities. Now they combine into one. Uh, they also streamline uh, the function of PBOC. So a lot of details uh, will probably won't be able to cover uh, today. Yeah. Uh, and also, they will also uh, um, consolidate uh, the, not consolidate, basically they also change the supervision at the local level. For example, the Financial Bureau in Shanghai, Financial Bureau in Beijing, in future will be staffed and uh, supervised not by the, the local municipal government, but rather than by Beijing. Basically, in a nutshell, be streamlined and uh, the power consolidated at the very top. Well, thank you very much, Jim. We have run out of time, I'm afraid. A fascinating session. Um, and um, many of my thanks to you for that. My thanks also to our sponsors again, uh, just for uh, enabling us to run these webinar sessions and looking forward um, on the future agenda. Uh, we have other events coming up, uh, which you may be interested in. Uh, tomorrow, looking at uh, agroforestry systems. Uh, next Monday, um, creative consulting, um, how to move from misdirected efforts to transformative results. Uh, a session next Tuesday, uh, focusing on Mauritius as a financial center and the role of the central bank digital currencies next Wednesday. Uh, do keep an eye on our forthcoming agenda um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Um, but before we leave, just um, finally to say a huge thank you to you um, all for attending, uh, but particularly to Jim Ma uh, for taking the time to put together uh, a fascinating insight into uh, a time of change in China's economic management. Uh, Jean, normally I throw the floor open for a round of applause. You'll have to have a very small round of applause from me today. Um, but many thanks indeed uh, for your time. Um, it's been fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure is mine. Thank you. Thank you.